Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon, founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees, and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. Our team of JBD coaches support men and women to engage in divorce with more calm, clarity, and confidence through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. When you look at uh, uh, articles on abused women, the kind of therapy they get, usually they get self-determination talks and venting the anger and mourning the loss and all those kind of things. But they don't get forgiveness and they get stuck in something called accusatory suffering. They want to tell that story over and over again to protect themselves. And I did went with my ladies in my study. I did a storytelling at the beginning of the study and they all displayed that, the accusatory suffering. They just want to tell everyone how bad he was to protect themselves. Otherwise they would lose their boundaries, I think. Today's episode focuses on the vital role of forgiveness in your healing. Now, I know many of you, your back just went up and you may have thought, no bloody way, I'm not forgiving. In my years facilitating coaching groups, clients have often scowled and scoffed at the thought, never mind the need for or value of forgiveness. So I made sure to find an international forgiveness expert to speak to us today. Stay with me. You're about to learn some powerful and essential lessons required for you to emerge from your divorce healed and whole. Hi, this is attorney Billy Tarasio and my partner Julie and I have created a resource for you if you are representing yourself in family court. No one should go into family court without knowing the basics and we will teach you everything you need to know at Win Without Law School to represent yourself with confidence. We'll teach you how to get exhibits in, how to draft your pretrial statements, and how to speak to the judge so the judge will listen. We'll teach you how to defend against false accusations and everything you need to know to be an effective advocate both if you're negotiating or if you're presenting evidence. Don't wait. Go to winwithoutlawschool.com. We can help you. I'm excited to introduce today's special guest. Dr. Gail Reed holds a PhD in educational psychology with a specialty in forgiveness research, therapy, and education. She's a speaker for the International Forgiveness Institute and an adjunct professor at UW-Madison, teaching constructive conflict management. Dr. Reed has also published articles on the benefit for women with a history of spousal psychological abuse and for those divorced due to infidelity. Welcome, Gail. 
Thank you. Gail, I'm so excited to have you here today. And I know this time is going to fly by. Before we get into the conversation on forgiveness, what led you to get involved in the area of forgiveness? I've always been interested in how people find meaning in their life. And I also had an interest because I was traumatized by a high conflict divorce and with abuse and infidelity. And I wanted to heal myself so I could heal other people. So I found Robert Enright, who was running the forgiveness program at UW-Madison. And we did some research together on that. I had to heal myself first and then reach out to other people. Beautiful. And I'm so glad that you said that because our listeners will hear even deeper how you can relate having had that same high conflict experience as they're having. Let's just set the stage a bit. I was reading through some of the material that, that you shared with me, and I came across a few statements that I wanted to read to our listeners. The first one was, quote, the negative impact on a woman's emotional health by psychological abuse is very significant and more serious than the impact of physical abuse. Why is that? If you're hit or punched or whatever the physical abuse is, you know it's unfair and you don't deserve that, but you're not having your self-esteem just shattered. Verbal abuse says you're not worthy, you're not good, you can't control your own choices, you're, you don't exist sometimes, it's threatening, and threats are worse than physical abuse because their threats are not realized, you can just hang in the air. But mostly it says you're not worthy, you're not worthy, and that really hurts self-esteem. I'm hearing that that it's it has a deeper psychological wound than any pounding that someone might get physical impact. A lot of the women I worked with would say, I wish I had a wound so people would understand me and believe me. That's the other thing. People don't believe it. I just smiled when you said that because those were my exact words in my divorce. I remember saying if he would just if he would just hit me, if I just had a black eye or a bruise, they would take the pain more seriously. So thank you for saying that. I think so many people listening would resonate with that. The, the other question on that, is it the same for men? I mean, we have a lot of male listeners and male clients, and certainly I've worked with plenty who are struggling with... Uh, high conflict spouse so just it curious is the about same that for men i think but we haven't found any differences between men and women that deal with this okay good so i just wanted to clarify that yeah i know um part of your process which is what we're going to talk about today helps clients to notice and detach from psychological defenses i read in your materials um it certainly is a normal response to use psychological defenses to manage the anger pain and confusion caused by the abuse and so i thought it would be helpful before we talk about forgiveness to um to have you describe what a psychological defense is and and give us a couple of examples yeah one is denial but you stay in a relationship because you're denying how much it hurts you now, that's an emergency room responder denial is, but it doesn't work well over time. Mm. The other one is uh, projection onto other people. 
you get mad yourself and punish like your kids or something like that. The other, another one would be condoning and excusing. You, you minimize it so you can live with it. Right. And it really hurts you to do that. Another one is um, identifying with the, uh, the view of, of the abuser. You say, I'm ashamed. I'm not worth it. I'm, I, I believe him. I'm not worth it or him or her. I'm not worthy. Those are really, there's a, that's a, uh, uh, like a emergency room uh, response, but it doesn't do well over time. Right. So a lot of these, and this is what I've always heard, even when I was in the 12 step program, they would say like there, we have these, this innate ability to create psychological defenses that help us in the moment. Like even as children growing up in dangerous situations, it's like, we just kind of know what to do. But then when we bring those defenses into a long-term scenario, they're counterproductive. Right. Gotcha. So so say something about anger. Anger is a really good uh, town crier to tell you that something's wrong, but it's not a, really a viable permanent house guest you know right right and anger can absolutely motivate us to move but it can be debilitating over the long term yeah right and and so you know gail i think for so many people i've worked with uh when i raise the topic of forgiveness um it seems so counterintuitive as a vital part of healing and in fact People have a very different view of what forgiveness is, uh, why to practice it, and the impact it has on on them, the forgiver. Um, so, so let's just start with a definition. Uh, you know, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a moral response to an injustice, but it does not deny the injustice. Okay, it, it contains goodwill, merciful restraint. Uh, you don't go after the person or stew in resentment of the person is generosity offering good things when it's safe to do so it's moral love hoping for the betterment of the other person but it's paradoxical you heal yourself by offering forgiveness in a safe way with good limits sometimes you don't want to go up to someone and say i forgive you and they're going to hurt you again you know because they didn't believe they did anything wrong you don't want to do that you want to do it with good limits you have to retrain your compassion also because sometimes when you're in an abusive relationship, you're kind of codependent or enmeshed with the person that's hurting you. You don't want to do that. You want to have compassion from afar and wish them well, but not get close enough for them to hurt you. Well, it's, it's not, so good, for you. It's not yeah. good for you. It's not good for the other person too. So. Yeah, and I was just going to ask you about that because so you know so many people who are meshed with these high conflict personalities, uh, part of part of our listeners' struggle is their own codependence, and mm-hmm. so uh, the danger one would say the fear of the danger is. Um, you know, I do that all the time. I I have compassion and and I forgive and and so I just keep getting pummeled and 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 I can't forgive for that reason because it's it it it's like taking down a protection or something. And actually, that's one of the reasons we get ourselves into stewing about the thing, that rehearsal of the wrongdoing, because we want to protect ourselves. But we can say that compassion doesn't mean 
fixing the other person or staying close to the other person. That's not good for yourself. It's not good for them either. And it's not reconciliation. True forgiveness wants reconciliation, but it's two people's choice to do that. You can choose to forgive before it, if it's impossible to reconcile. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so that's really important to know that. I think my pastor said once, he was like, for, forgiveness takes one, reconciliation takes two. Takes two. Yep. And, and the timing has to be good, too. You, you can't rush the other person. They can't rush you. Right. So, so what are the misconceptions um, of forgiveness? Well, the first thing is people or have other people helping them do this, their family members. It's denial and forgetting. It's, it, you know, just, just forget it. Just happened that one time. It's not going to happen again. Sometimes the abuser will help you think that too. It's not condoning, deciding the thing is not that bad. He didn't hit me, you know. He just yelled at me. It was just every month and not every other week or something like that. It's not excusing. The person couldn't help it. They may need a lot of therapy to try to help it, but they're responsible for their choices. And that's giving them human dignity because the person could change, but you're not going to change for them you know, or make them change. It's not condemning like I'm the good person and you're the bad person. You know, <laughs> I'm forgiving and you're not. It's not seeking justice or compensation. You can seek justice, merciful justice, but it's not forgiving. It doesn't exclude seeking justice. It's not seeking justice itself. For example, if I had to uh, go to court to have a fair settlement for my kids, I could seek justice without uh, abandoning my forgiveness process, right? So another thing is not just saying, I forgive you. It's a much co more complicated thing like in that. So, and so, people, so, go ahead. So I'm hearing you say what it's not that, that what forgiveness isn't is just saying words. Forgiveness is, is never condoning what the person did. It's not denying what the, the other person did. It's not excusing it. It's mm -hmm. not accepting it. Um, it's not, a. a, a seeking something in return, like a, a quid pro quo. So right. it's not any of those things. Um, and, you know, I had done a talk once and one, one person said to me, I, I, um, I have to forgive because that's how I protect myself. And, and if I, I, I can't forgive. And if I do forgive, then I'll lose that protection uh, as if the unforgiveness was the boundary of protection. When you look at uh, uh, articles on abused women, the kind of therapy they get, usually they get uh, self-determination talks and venting the anger and mourning the loss and all those kind of things. But they don't get forgiveness. And they get stuck in something called accusatory suffering. They want to tell that story over and over again to protect themselves. And I did with my ladies in my study, I did a storytelling at the beginning of the study. And they all displayed that, the accusatory suffering. They just want to tell everyone how bad he was to protect themselves. Otherwise, they will lose their boundaries, I think. But they, and we, and we taught them to do virtue as a response to that, we had an antidote of finding meaning in suffering, which means I can't change that past, but I can change myself with 
virtues. And so I have a new life now. I don't have to protect myself with that story of, the, of uh, my former suffering. So, so the story, and we talk to clients all the time about the story that they're telling themselves. And so, so what I'm hearing you say is for, for those of you who are listening, who, you know, you have your story and, and it's a real story. It's, it's your That's story of story. your psychological abuse and nobody's, nobody's doubting or denial, denying or saying anything that, that, that was your reality. What I hear Gail saying is when you tell it over and over again, uh, you're you're living it. You're you're embracing it almost as as who you are. I am the victim of the abuse. Am I hearing right. that right? That's exactly right. And so you do need to tell your story and have someone help validate that and help you problem solve about that and all those kind of things. But if you just live in that story as a protective device, you're re-victimizing yourself, and that person is living in your head. And not only that, I actually had a client who came to me 10 years post-divorce and she had lived in her story for 10 years. And it was almost as if she put the pause button on her life. Right. And then once we went through a series of coaching, I mean, she was so ready. She exploded. I mean, her life like turned a corner so rapidly, but it required her to let go of the old or, story or decide how she could work through it with some right. coaching skills or some forgiveness therapy skills. So people get stuck there. They don't know what else to do. Right. Once right. they get their validation, they just have to live in the story. Well, that's not the end of the end of the process. So I, I really encourage people to think, well, I could get better. In fact, I'll say to people, this should not have happened to you. It should not have happened to you. But if you use forgiveness to overcome it, you'll be better if then if it didn't happen at all you can grow exponentially by forgiving right and and that just is so aligned with everything we talk about in terms of going through the divorce and doing that hard work that internal work so that you can emerge stronger healthier and and better suited to engage in an, another healthy relationship and also engage with your children or your workmates or whoever else it is that you're being around. Absolutely. Any relationship. So, right. so one of the things I noticed is in your forgiveness therapy, and I know you have reports on how valuable going through forgiveness therapy is, which I'll let you comment on as we go along. The, I would love to kind of walk through those four phases a little bit. Sure. Because I think that, 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 it's easy to get stuck um, if you're thinking about phase four when you don't understand phase one. Like, how do I do that? And why would I even care if anything I did benefited him or her? And that that kind of um, understanding those earlier stages of your uh, of your therapy, I think, would be really helpful. Yes. So, so phase one. So there's four phases of the of the forgiveness therapy, and phase one is what you refer to as the uncovering phase. This is where we look at the damage that's been happening post-injury, right? With going just with the, the defense mechanisms and the, the harm that happened because of the shaming. So this is damage due to, um, it's, it's, can you say that again? Can you say that differently? I'm not sure I caught okay, it, and I think that's really due, valuable. It's damage due to the injury itself, 
and are trying to cope with it. And also the shaming part of it, because you feel like you're outside of any other person's uh, purview. I mean, you feel like alone, you know, because you're the only one that got abused like this. That's not true, of course, but you feel alone and you just have to cope on your own with these um, bad feelings and not having any healing prospects, you know. Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest things that clients who come to me say is, you know, they feel so bad about themselves. Like, how did I let this go on for so long? How did I not see? How could I have allowed? Like, and then they just abuse themselves, right? It's like, I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. I I can't believe I was so ignorant, whatever it is. And it's just like heaping pain upon pain. And actually, I ask people when we go, we have a, uh, Uncovering the psychological defenses, uncovering anger, with we do the appropriate attribution of responsibility, and there's a good anger. It makes sure you know something's wrong, but there's the lingering anger resentment, which poisons you. The uncovering the inappropriate shame. I'm not who my abuser said I was. Mm. I'm not that. And you can help them understand that and help them work through the other people that say good things about them. Um, whereas uh, replaying the event, I had people that were replaying the, the events maybe three or four times a day. That takes a, a lot of energy. That's not constructive. Talking about the events to do problem solving is just replaying it as a traumatic event. Right. 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 And your awareness of your response of resentment and revengeful thoughts and dwelling on the pain. And that's not where you want to live, you know. So you realize in the uncovering phase, your current approach is not working. It's not, you're not shamed for that because that's the approach you knew how to do, right? But you need guidance to go on more to forgiveness. So I love that. I love that at the end of this phase, you look at the cost of the behavior associated with unforgiveness, right? Because, because like listening when, when you first mention forgiveness to someone, they, they have no motivation to forgive yeah. because of their hurt and their anger and their pain. But at that end, at the end of your uncovering phase, when you talk about the cost of, uh, of behaviors associated with unforgiveness, including the telling of your story over and over again, um, and invite people to consciously choose a new and better direction. I mean, that sounds like such a turning point, such a pivotal piece. And we talk about the cognitive rehearsal or telling the story over and over again. The reason why your mind does that, it wants to have a different ending. We give forgiveness as that different ending. That's going to unlock the story. Beautiful. been listening to our podcast, Getting Educated, Regulating Your Emotional Reactions, and it's been really helpful. Yet you know you could do better, be better, and you're wanting and needing more support. That's where our coaching service is a game changer. We're here for you when you need us the most, ensuring you have all the tools and resources at your fingertips, guiding and supporting you to be more effective. 
Our free rapid relief call helps you gain a broader perspective, commit to your best next steps, and determine what coaching support is right for you. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call today. And before we go to the, the next phase, where does grieving play a role in this process? We, uh, it comes in the work phase a little later on. It, it, I put it as the first part of the work phase because we've just uncovered pain, right? And then we're right. choosing to forgive. We have to go work on the pain and have a paradigm to go work on the pain. And there's a lot of pain. It doesn't come up all at once. And so I, I really en- encourage people to grieve the pain anytime it comes up. Because- I, we've talked on recent shows how that's that process, you know, could it can go on for years where it just it can, it, you're triggered, it, it, it comes up, there's another right. level of grief and healing. Or an event happens or you didn't realize mm-hmm. that memory and those kind of things. So it's an ongoing process and you need to take time with that pain and grieving the pain. I'm going to give you a simple example. I thought I grieved my mother's death. I was in the grocery store and I, I came across her cookies that she loved. Pecan Sandies. I was grieving for her for two years. I thought I was done now, you know foolishly i came across her favorite cookies pecan sandies I, they're horrible cookies <laughs> I, just found, I just hate those cookies but I, I i i burst out crying and i before i went to teach the forgiveness process i would probably just kept going and shove my feelings down i put my groceries aside came back for them went out in the car and did my grief and came back mm. and so when you have a triggering moment like maybe your anniversary or uh, a person seeing another woman or whatever it is you know those kind of triggering processes and so and sometimes it's all about you you don't know they don't know what they're doing it the triggering you have reasons for triggering inside yourself you know you have to take time with that and realize what can this pain teach me and how can I thoroughly give it for right now how can I get help to grieve it so yeah, it just sounds like this entire process is such a, um, how do I want to say this? It, it, it sounds like it's such a beautiful um, getting to know yourself, you know, what, what you're, you, you talked about morals and virtues earlier, like really looking at the pain and the hurt, um, really understanding the grieving, like really understanding the variety of emotional waves that come and go throughout this this process and so we go into the second phase the committing to forgiveness phase we know that we're just committing to try this right Mm. we're not saying you better start forgiving right now we're opting for a change of heart like i want to have my heart changed toward this person and my heart changed toward myself toward myself and so then we commit to the hard work of forgiveness but we don't make sure it happens right then it's not a one-stop shop you know it's an ongoing lifelong process and so so we just commit to that and i want to talk about the three decisions but but you just said something that i just again i'm just imagining people getting triggered by it and so often when i talk about forgiveness um i what's interesting is you know I'm, i'm so clear on the value that 
true and deep forgiveness offers the person forgiving. Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned toward the other person. Now I'm, I'm 14 years post-divorce and, and the other person isn't capable of and hasn't changed. And so, you know, the hurt is ongoing when I'm not getting hurt, I'm watching my kids get hurt. Right. So how do you, how do you, so it's so much easier for me to understand um, by forgiving, I release myself from bitterness and resentment. I, I teach my children the benefit of it. I, I have a change of heart. I like all, I get all of that. I want to have you speak to those who were like, I don't want him or her to feel that. I don't want to do anything for him or her. Like, what do you say to people that get stuck on that? that You you can't change the person, so you can't make them be worthy of forgiveness. Actually, no one's worthy of forgiveness. It's a gift. The other thing is they're still acting out, and your kids are still being hurt by that. My daughter's in that situation also. And mine's old news. It's 27 years old, so I'm not in that place anymore. But my daughter is. She's coming to understand that she could have compassion for her former partner without excusing or condoning his actions and still seek justice about his actions. Not with so, so, so the connection to the forgiveness of the other person for the other person, though, that's the, I just, that's the part I heard you say, unless I misheard you, that I just want you to speak to. Like, I get, I, I think people can uh, embrace, I need to forgive because it's going to be better for me because I'm going to clear my heart. But that for the other person part, I think a lot of people can get stuck on. And I think what I'm trying to explain, which is a hard thing to understand, you can have p- compassion for someone without excusing or condoning them and not noticing new wrongdoings. And so you have to retrain that compassion. So my daughter just was realizing that her former partner was uh, uh, abused as a child. Okay. So she can have compassion on that, but she still has to say, I don't want him to get a clean slate because he's still doing uh, abuse in the courts, you know, and so what I love about that answer is we've been, you know, we're, we're pretty deep into this series. And so we've been talking about how the high conflict personality, when they're a narcissist or borderline personality or whatever variety or abused as children, whatever it is, that um, they didn't ask to be this way. They they, they, you know, circumstances created who they are too. And in many cases with the whole narcissistic spectrum, they have no ability to see their part and change. And so the beauty of being able to have compassion, and it took me so many years, I thought I will never have compassion. And I had pity at first, I definitely started with pity, which I felt like was a step in the right direction. But ultimately, to really have a soft heart for the fact that the other person, uh, your, your ex, soon to be ex, that circumstances created him or her to be that way, and it's not their fault. Um, and, and actually, you- sometimes they can't even choose to change very easily. I was in a therapy session with, during my uh, lead up to my divorce, and this 
uh, was a Christian therapist and an addiction therapist, actually. He was talking to both of us and he realized that my ex-partner was, or soon to be ex-partner, was from coming from just a violent, abusive background. And he said, you know, I can't help you and your, with your marriage unless you work on this violent background because you're bringing it into your marriage what it doesn't belong. Otherwise, I'm going to advise Gail to divorce you because the pattern has to be broken one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And my partner leaned forward eagerly to get help, and then he snapped back. He could not leave his uh, kind of I'm okay kind of mode. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't face the pain, is what I'm saying. Right. And I had to respect that. I had to respect he couldn't face the pain, so I broke the pattern. So. Right. And and I think with the narcissist, it's understanding that they can't even see their partner. Like they right. just they have like a blind spot that's just right. so big that they can't see it. And and um and so yeah, so that they, whole piece of of having compassion for the fact that the behavior is horrible, the human being uh is is broken, is limited, is, you know, is scarred in his or her own way. Right. And, and just, actually you can think of it this way is that you can have compassion based on their need for uh being loved like any other human being, their need to be comforted like any other human being. You can just go down the list of human needs and have compassion for them about that without excusing or condoning their bad behavior. And sometimes people like this have such a low threshold of of feelings that they have to create chaos in order to feel something. Exactly. Yeah. One of our last guests actually talked exactly about that and how they feel more comfortable in chaos. Right. Um, as a result so they can of feel that. something. Right, right. So, so stage one, we talked about that phase one is the uncovering phase. Phase two is the decision phase. You referenced um, that it's a just try, not a get it done phase, and that it's right. a change of heart, opening the door to uh, a major life change for the better. And And your process includes... Three choices, uh, you say. One is choosing how you want to respond to the pain of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to comment on that? And then I'm going to run well, through the other two. Yeah, I'm going to comment on that. We've already kind of covered this, but you need, you could be a transitional person in the kind of chain of abusive family relationships by saying, I want to grieve this. I want to feel it. I'm going to just do grieving, but with an extra caveat that I'm not going to pass the pain back to myself, to others, including my children, and back to the wrongdoer. Gotcha. And so so that's what you do. You make those three choices. I'm not going to do that. And you have to grieve the unjustness of it. It's not just grieving loss. It's grieving the unjustness of the, mm. of the pain. And so that's another added caveat to that, I think. And so, because it was unfair, it's totally unfair. So, so you, for, first, you're you're grieving, you're choosing how you're responding to the pain, you're grieving the unfairness of it and the 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 abuse itself or the loss um, from the abuse, and then choosing how you want to think, feel, and behave toward the abuser. Right. We can talk about you could have realistic but good thoughts about him or her 
wishing him well, him or her well. We want to have appropriate emotions, compassion, and uh, even moral love, those kind of things. And you want to behave as best you can to not respond to the, uh, per, uh, the per, per, I'm going to say the provoking uh, interactions. Come on, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can just respond really minimally or kindly. You don't want to be too kind because they're trying to draw you into be making chaos again, you know, but you can just, that's a hook sometimes when you well, get yeah, and that's what I was, I was just going to jump in on that, because I think that one of the things uh, that we talk about is when you're interacting with a high conflict personality and you're so angry and you're so hurt and you're you're it's so unjust, you end up looking like the crazy one. You're screaming, right. you're yelling, you're reactive, you're triggered, you know, and, and so you just you both go, you know, basically down the toilet together um, and choosing how you want to think, feel and behave towards the abuser, part of that is being able to create that space and to have uh, a very level-headed, rational, responsive... And I uh, ask uh, women to practice those. Gotcha. Really short answers. Right, right, right. Really short answers. (laughs) And really Um, just calm, short answers. Yeah, I'm always saying, like, less is more, less is more. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. And then finally, the third choice, right? So choosing how you want to respond to the pain, choosing how you want to think, feel and behave, choosing what kind of a person you want to become. And, and I think this is a great opportunity to talk about the person who emerges from a horrible marriage and a difficult divorce filled with bitterness and resentment. You, you can see that person a mile away. And, and what I can guarantee is that person is going to find the same person in a different body, rinse and repeat, right, and, and right, feel right, all right. the more victimized. Like, why does this keep happening to me? Well, actually, I think sometimes we're tuned in to attract these kind of people because of something that happened in our childhood. We had to take care of a mother, a father yep. who was not good, Okay. So you can change your mind about that and, and stay clean from relationship yeah. for a long time. But I was going to say that when you practice uh, reframing the uh, the wrongdoer, you can see those uh, create a story around him or her. It's realistic. They were abused as a child, isn't excuse and condone the behavior, but they have feelings that they needed to have uh, requited, you know. And so you can. Uh, uh, little narrative around the wrongdoer that he deserved to have a better childhood or something like that. And is also in distress now. So, but it doesn't excuse or condone his behavior. So I could at least grant him inherent human worth. He's worthy no matter what he's like or he or she is like. And And doing so, I affirm my own inherent worth. I can give that inherent worth and claim it for myself. And I think that in general, like even when we're raising our children, it's always, you know, you, 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 you punish or you critique or you bring attention to the behavior, but you always lift up the the person, human being. the human being. And, and even in a case like this, where a human being could have caused so much harm, has caused so much harm, 
it's it's the behavior and not the human being. And I think that's hard. I think especially in the early stages, and I'm sure that's why you have four phases, like to to really slowly uh, unweave and yep, yep, yep. I hear that. I hear that loud and clear. So I think we've touched on did you want to say something? I want to say something about the generosity about merciful restraint and generosity and the moral love portion of it. Merciful restraint is just stopping doing the resenting thing or the having revengeful thoughts, which is not easy to do. People don't like to say they're resentful and revengeful, but they are. You know, <laughs> you want to get justice, right? So you can stop that revenge and uh, resentful thoughts. That's merciful restraint. Then you give generously, hoping the person does well, not they have a good business or have a nice car, or they have an another nice marriage, but just as a human being, flourishing as a human being with values and virtues, okay? So when you get stuck, when you get resentful again, you go back to merciful restraint and say, what am I, what's hurting me here? Mm. I'm, I'm breaking the bonds of my merciful restraint. Why, why, what's hurting me here? I have to go back and re- revisit the pain unit. Right. And that's, and that's peeling back the layers and just right. getting to deeper and deeper, deeper layers yeah. of healing, which I, that's, that's powerful. That's great. So we've, we've talked a lot about phase three, right? The work phase. I think a bunch yeah. of the things, the discovering empathy, the, the growing in mercy. And can you just define mercy? Because I mean, I'm a Christian, so it's like, that's part of my, um, you know, my uh, vocabulary and what I use all of the time. How would you describe merciful well, mercy or merciful really restraint? It's not letting somebody off the hook, right? Merciful restraint. It's not letting some off off the hook. I always think about forgiveness is on a balance beam with justice. You fall off mm-hmm. the balance beam if you excuse and condone. You fall off the balance beam on the other side if you do uh, uh, revengeful justice. You know. Mm-hmm. Merciful restraint is merciful justice and merciful forgiveness. And so I think you have to be thinking, I mean, merciful because I'm not going to hurt that person because they did wrong. But I'm also going to want them to heal, but but, uh, on their own volition. They have to hear on their own volition. So, but you leave them room to do that without doing things bad to them to for justice you know you don't use justice to punish the person you do merciful justice to get justice for yourself and your kids and it would be good for him or her also they need to give that whatever they're withholding so yeah and you know just because we have so many people in different stages given what you just said i kind of just want to put a little note note if if you're you know working on something that's just protecting the kids or reasonable custody and your high conflict spouse is telling you, cause this is something else that, that you're hurting them and that you're doing it to them. That that's not what Gail is talking about. Like right. I, I always say to my clients, don't listen to what he or she says. This is the question you ask yourself. Am I doing this for me and yes. the children or am I doing it to him or her. And if you're doing it for you or for your children, then 
let their words and, and their story, their their narrative go, because right. that's not what she's talking about. Is and that fair? People, that's very fair. And often people in these high conflict divorce situations, there's have somewhat of mental illness, right? Absolutely. And they project their pain onto you and they blame you for their own pain. You don't, you don't have to own that, that blaming. Right. That's not what this is about. That that that's like that's right. not what we're talking about here. So then the right. the final phase is deepening and outcome phase, which is finding meaning, finding meaning, experiencing release, and finding renewed purpose. Talk to us a few minutes about that before we wrap up. Okay, finding meaning and suffering is a, a concept that Viktor Frankl came up with when he was in the. Uh, uh, camps in Germany. And so he started logotherapy and he noticed people in the camps were being really mistreated. The people that did better were still generous. They're still compassionate. They didn't join uh, the ragging on of other people. They just were, they stayed with their virtues. And so he decided that was, he did it as a con trust to the will to to pleasure freud the will to power nietzsche so he did that as a, a thing so what he says is and this is the antidote to accusatory suffering you can't change the event you can't change the other person but you can be changed yourself by reaching for virtues such as moral love forgiveness kindness compassion all those kind of things you can change your own life story that way and so we encourage people to do that. In fact, I think forgiveness is one way of finding meaning and suffering, a most powerful way of doing that. And so I love go that. ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that like when we talk to people and what, what I've said on, on this show before is when you take this really difficult marriage you've been in and this difficult divorce you're going through and you use it as fuel to to heal and to hone and to grow um you emerge a a, a better version of yourself and You're much better You're and much that's better. that's what i'm hearing in your finding meaning the the meaning in all of this or or the purpose or the fuel that it is is to become a better person that's right and actually if you don't do this you just give people sort of this is how uh, processes you can use to better yourself or these are some tools you can have if you're not going for uh, finding meaning you're not going to be healed i really right. believe that so yeah, the rest of it falls flat it, 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 uh, they're just skills you have to really want to change yourself as a moral human being yeah and that's where the healing comes from yeah Last words for our listeners. I'm going to say to you that you can get justice or you can get fairness. You can do all those things if, if you do it mercifully, but nothing hits the pain of betrayal, but forgiveness. Nothing changes that, but forgiveness. It's the it's ultimate the, soothing balm. Rough it is. Mm. I love that. So you can find out more about Dr. Gail Reed and her forgiveness therapy at internationalforgiveness.com. Is there any other way that folks can reach out to you, Gail? 
um, my email, G-A-Y-L-E-L-R-E-E-D, that's Gail L. Reed at charter.net. Excellent. Thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your experience and wisdom and research and insights. I, I think that this is invaluable what you've shared with us today. Bless you for asking. I wish you well. Thank you so much. Divorce is hard, but a high conflict divorce, it's overwhelming. It involves battling not just emotional tolls, but endless court dates, hidden finances, and toxic personalities. This is your call to action. Don't miss the ultimate high conflict divorce summit from November 13 to 17, 2023. Our summit brings together an unparalleled lineup of experts featuring leading psychologists who demystify high conflict personalities, top financial advisors revealing strategies to uncover hidden assets, esteemed legal minds to guide you toward a favorable settlement, and renowned child experts who will arm you with the tools and tactics needed to fight effectively for custody. Act now and register for free to unlock an exclusive bounty of gifts from all 20 experts, yours just for signing up. Take back control. Visit journeybeyonddivorce.com backslash summit 2023. Register now and reclaim your future. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.